0: Feet high, and the two buildings are only separated by 12 yards or 36 feet. It's about the width of our stage. And to anyone, he says to those in his workshops if anyone is willing to walk across a plank that spans those two buildings, he will reward or his company will award them with a certified check for five million dollars. He says that they will even pay the taxes so that you don't have to. He tells his group that the success rate of crossing is about 80%. And he's not kidding. So usually he writes that about 25 to 30 people come to the workshops. And when he asks people to raise their hand if they're willing to do it, he gets usually somewhere between one and three people. And then he says to the one to three people, let me give you Full disclosure, so you know what you're doing when you make this choice. He says, it's preferable to cross between the two buildings in the morning after the fog clears. Then he says, there could be some wind issues at times. He says, they're severe, but not very often, he says. And then he says to the one person who still has their hand raised, Did I give you the dimensions of the plank? He says, the plank is 12 inches wide and one and one quarter inches thick. It has a little bit of flexibility, he says. But don't be afraid, he goes on, and says, you could put the plank on the floor and you could walk across it and you would have no problem not falling off. He says, any takers? None. He says, it's a measly 12 yards. He says, if $5 million isn't enough, I have been, my company said that I can up it to $50 million. Three people now raise their hand. He said this though, how about this? You're standing on Tower A, only 36 feet away from Tower B. And on the other tower, as you look across, your family, your entire family is over there. He says, in order to save their lives, you must cross from your tower to theirs on this plank. And then, he said, and then he writes in the book, guess how many people raised their hand? He said, all of them. All of them. And here's what Jim Lore says. He who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how." See, he's saying this, people are not willing to spend their time and energy unless the purpose for which they do it is great. Greater risks, greater fears, greater danger, they will face that if the reason they're doing it is for a great commitment or a great purpose. In other words, there aren't very many people in life who would risk their lives and walk across a plank just for a lot of money, even though it is a lot of money. Because most people, not all, most people would think to be totally committed to having a lot of money isn't really a worthy purpose for your entire life. But what he found out was this, but when the stakes of life are for love and family, that which is of incalculable value, he says, everyone will walk the plank. What plank would you be willing to walk and for why? Why? See, the apostle Paul walked the plank literally all the time throughout his whole life. To one point, he writes in 1 Corinthians, I die daily. He was really at risk in great danger on a regular basis and for many years of his life, literally almost every single day. But he says, I, I can face with in I can face any why, and that includes in our text, prison and even the possibility of death, he says, because I have the greatest why in the world, I can, I can handle anything. I can handle anything that God lays into my life. See, he didn't just have a great purpose. He had the greatest purpose, namely Christ and his gospel. You see, you could almost say that his greatest purpose was because he knew the greatest person. We've been talking about total commitment, and I would tell you this morning That total commitment to Jesus means that Jesus must be the greatest purpose in your life. Jesus is the why that would enable you to bear through any how that you face. So let me show you from Paul's life and from this text about what it looks like when you have the greatest purpose because you have the greatest person in your life. Verse 18 reads, What then? Only that in every way, and then he goes on to say, whether in pretense or not with good motives, Christ is preached. You have to understand, as Paul writes these words, he is sitting in a cell, most likely in the city of Caesarea. And if you know anything about prisons in those days, they weren't very nice at all. In fact, he mentions the word chains. It's translated in the ESV, imprisonment. He mentions it four times just in chapter 1, verses 7, 13, 14, and 17. Why? Because that's his context. That's where he's writing from. Now listen, if you, you don't know anything about Roman soldiers and Roman prisons, it was no piece of cake. Um, he would have been chained, his, both his hands together, chained 24-7 And not just chained to a wall, chained to a soldier. There would be four soldiers guarding him. One in the room with him, sitting with him all times, day and night, 24-7. He could not sleep without being chained to someone. He could not get up and go to the bathroom without being chained to someone. There would be one person in his cell. There would be two people outside the door of his cell. And one down at the other end of the hallway that led to his cell. Every day, 24-7. 24-7. He would never be alone. That was his life. And on top of all of that, he would not be allowed a change of clothes. He would not be offered anything to eat. He was totally 100% responsible for all of his own clothes and all of his own meals. And so he writes in the last letter of his life in 2 Timothy four thirteen, he asks Timothy, bring the cloak and bring the book's And above all, the parchments would have been the scriptures. He has to have someone bring him food, bring him, or they would let him die in prison. Paul is in this situation, as he writes, he's not 100% sure, but he's pretty sure that Jesus is going to deliver him and vindicate him, and he's going to be set free so that he can continue to proclaim the gospel But as he writes his famous words that as Christians we're all very familiar with, verses 20 and 21, you have to understand this. He's not writing from the Roman Radisson. He's not even writing it from the Roman Ramada. He's writing it from a prison cell, which means what, Pastor Walker? Here's what it means. Ready? Ready? If you're going to have Jesus, the greatest person, be the greatest purpose of your life, and you'll be totally committed to him, here's what it means. It means that this, that when he is your greatest purpose, it is not a bed of roses. It does not mean that everything will go well in your life. It doesn't mean that your life will become easier, and all your bills will be paid, and your marriage will be fine, and your kids will always turn out, and you'll always have a job, and a car sitting in your driveway, and food on the table, But what he is saying is this, that when you have Jesus as your greatest purpose, when he is the one to whom you've committed your entire life, it does mean this, that he transcends any and all circumstances, whether they're good or bad. So here's what Paul says. Knowing that, he writes in verse 20, and as it is, meaning in prison, this is my, listen to him, this is my eager expectation and my hope that I will not be at all ashamed. The word eager expectation is really only one word, but it's a three-part compound word. Here's what the three parts say. Away from the head looking. And you say, well, what in the world does that mean? It pictured an Olympic runner... With their head looking away from the crowd, looking away from all the people they're running at, and looking or watching forward, focused on the finish line. It pictures someone who has an eager, it's an intense, persistent expectation. It's used in Romans 8:19, the only other time. It describes someone who has an undivided focus. They're not distracted. They're not people who are running through life, turning this way and that way, looking all over at all the lesser things that could could, could distract them from the main thing in life. See, here's what Paul says. If Jesus is your greatest purpose, he has to be your greatest focus. When Jesus is your greatest purpose, you will have a laser focus. You will not be looking here and looking there at lesser things. They won't distract you from the greater things. It pictures someone looking at Jesus and in so doing, choosing to look away from other things that might take his place. You see, in the text, what Paul didn't write, his eager expectation and his hope If it was you and me riding, we might have said this. My eager expectation and my hope is that I'm not going to die in here. That I'm going to be set free. That I won't involve any more danger or risk. See, he doesn't say that that is his intense focus. God, get me out of here. God, save my life. God, preserve me. He doesn't talk about that at all. Here's what he says. My earnest expectation is while I'm in here, I would never be ashamed of Jesus. Even the good things, Paul says, be careful, they can become the main things. It's not wrong to want to be safe. It's not wrong to want to live longer and avoid risks and dangers. But see, here's what he says. When Jesus is your greatest purpose, good things stay good things, but they don't become God things. They, become, they don't become the main things. See, you could be here this morning And you'd really like a job promotion. you really like to be elevated. And it would be great to make a little bit extra money. You'd have a little bit more comfort and cushion and paying your bills at the end of every month. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? But see, you have to decide, is the job promotion, is that a good thing or is it the main thing? Getting married, time passes and you're still single and you look around and see everybody else and other people are married and they're starting to have kids and they're gonna raise a family, and you would so, so much like to have that. And it's a good thing, isn't it? It's a wonderful thing, but it's a good thing. But when Jesus is your purpose, it's not the main thing. See, playing sports when you're in high school, this was my problem. I got distracted on being playing sports and getting this and doing this and this award and going to this school. See, sports are a good thing. Getting a scholarship to a big university in a high-profile job because of it. See, those are good things. They're good things, but they're not the main thing. They're not the main thing. Getting a house, getting a car doing all the things that we want to do in life. See, those are good things. But when Jesus is your greatest purpose, the greatest purpose is to live your life in such a way that no matter what other choices you make, it would never make him look small. Paul lived in what they call an honor and shame culture. And we we don't have that quite as much, although we're moving in that direction. We're a Western individualistic culture but he was in an honor and shame culture. In other words, what mattered most is not what happened to you, is what happened to everybody that you were united with or your family or your friends and how you made them look. See, when you went to prison in first century, it was something that would be awful, a lot like today. And you carry it with you your whole life. And it wonders what kind of upbringing you have. People look at you and they don't want to be associated with you anymore. Even if you were innocent, even if your prison sentence was short-lived, it was a total shame. And see, in a culture, honor and shame culture, you did everything in life to pursue honor and you did everything you could to stay away and avoid shame at all costs. And if you got into prison, the first thing you'd want to do is get out of it and do nothing ever again to get you back in. Here's what Paul says, because Jesus is his focus, his purpose, that's not how I think. To him, it was an honor to be shamed. It was an honor. And so he says, look at the contrast. I'm not going to do anything to be ashamed, but always, see all the, the big, see the comprehensive words? Never this, always this. Never ashamed, always confident, always courageous, always being bold for Jesus. That's my goal. My goal is not freedom. My goal is not to have what other people think of me when I'm committed to him. My goal is that I will never make him look small. I call it demagnifying him. When you demagnify something, you reduce the size of it. And Paul says, spiritually, shame shrinks. Shame shrinks How awesome and great and valuable Jesus is. The goal of his life was to make much of Jesus. If he was ashamed, it would make less of Jesus. So when we don't witness, and we have a chance to give the gospel to someone who's talking to us about religion, and we want to say something and we don't see we are shrinking him, when you are asked what you believe on a certain issue and you refuse to tell them really the truth of well, what you believe and why you believe it, we're shrinking him. Not ready, not ready in your relationships at school, young people, or in the things that others do that you're not willing, you're not willing to ready to pay the cost to follow Jesus. See, it's shame that we feel and it shrinks him. When we're not willing to obey his word and we kind of slough it off but that's not that big a deal. I don't want to be the only one who doesn't watch that movie or listen to that music or dress that way. See, it shrinks him. And Paul says, I don't want to ever, including prison and death, I don't want to ever live my life any other way but to make much of him. So the former or the structure is not this shame but this. And what is that? That is to magnify him, he says. So I wrote in my notes today, total consecration, total consecration will produce total magnification. The word honor, as always, I will honor him. It's a word in the Greek, megaluno. You know what it means? Great light. It means something that you can't see and you put a big light on it so that you can see it clearly in all of its detail. That's what we are as Christians. Our great purpose is to make Christ as big as he really is. Megaluno, it's used five different times in the New Testament, and every time it talks about making something big, whether it was the phylacteries that the religious leaders wore to show how spiritual they were, or whether it was the, uh, making God great or enlarging something to make it bigger so everyone would be able to see it. Paul says this, basically, ready? If you want to have Jesus as your greatest purpose, you have to be willing to do this. You have to make yourself small so that he can become big. And if making yourself small means the shame of prison, the possibility of risk and fear and death, see, whatever it was, first century for him, he says, I'll be as small as I need to to make Jesus as big as he really is. So let me ask you, who or what? is really big in your life. Think about it. Every single one of us in this room, everyone, without exception, has someone or something that's big. I mean, really big in your life. Something or someone that you're magnifying. And I have found, my experience is, it's not usually very hard to figure out what it is in a person's life. Ask yourself these diagnostic questions. Ready? What are you always talking about? Whether it's in church before the service starts or after the church is over, when you see someone, what's one of the first things that come to your life, I mean, in your mind? What are you talking about all the time? What are you regularly thinking about, dreaming about? Oh, I wish I could. If I could. And you think about it all the time. What do you spend your money on? Look at your checking account. Look at all the things. Look what you're spending your money. Where does your energy go? Where does your time go? What do you spend it all on, see? What is it that you can't wait to get more of? What would you do to have anything to have? What would it be if you had to do anything to get it? You'd do it to have this. And also, what would you do to keep from not having it in your life? Paul says, here's mine. Here's my purpose. Here's Who's big in my life? It's Jesus. And you know what? I want to magnify him in everything. There are basically, and you know this, there are two ways to magnify something, right? One of them we learned in science class, and that's a microscope. The purpose of a microscope is what? It is used to make small things look bigger than they really are. So you see something that might not even be visible to the naked eye, and so you know you, you look under a microscope and you go, "Oh wow, that's gross," you know, or whatever it is, right? You look under there and I don't want to see that again, right? And a squirmy little thing, and you, you know that was in my. I sleep on those at night. No, thank you, right? So you get the little microscope and you look at all those things. See, that's what, making small things look bigger than they really are. But then there's telescope magnification, right? What does a telescope do? It makes things that seem small as big as they really are. Paul's not saying that, as always, I want to magnify Christ. He's not saying, I want to take a little Jesus and make him bigger than he really is. That's not what he's saying. You know what he's saying? I want to take a mega Jesus. I want to take a God who is so huge, so mammoth, so unbelievably important, and I want people, by my life and the way I live it, I want them to see how big he really is. You know why? Because Paul knew this that the vast majority of people, including the Roman soldiers that he was chained to, saw God as nothing or as incredibly small. Look around. Look around at our culture. Look around at the way people live and how they have divorced themselves from God in our schools, in our country, in our lives, and I can't, in our churches. God has become small. Very small. And Paul says, you know what prisons are for? You know what hospital beds are for? You know what difficult suffering and circumstances are You know what it's for? So that people who think God is small can see how big he really is in your life. In your life. Edward Hubble made, at the time, the largest telescope, mirror, magnifying glass, you want to say, in history. They sent it up in the Hubble Space. And it's out there to this day. I mean, it's big. It makes things, the mirror is so big and so powerful that it takes things that are 34 million miles away and you can see them as if they were only 6,000 miles away. As big and great and powerful that is, last year they came up with another one. This is called the James Webb telescope or, or mirror as they call it, magnifier. It's 100 times More powerful than the Hubble one. In other words, something 34 million miles away, the Hubble said it looks like it's only 6,000 miles. This one looks like it's only six miles away. It's huge. The Hubble was eight foot in diameter. This one is 21 feet across. They said that this thing is so powerful, even though it's a million miles away from Earth, and they just launched it this past December. This thing is so powerful that things that have never been be seen, all seen before, although they've always been out there in space, they've been out there, but we've never been able to see them before. To us, they have been invisible. Now, not only will they be visible, but it will be as if they were close up. And then they showed pictures of all the things that they now can see. You see, that's us. We are not made as Christians, we are not saved to be microscope magnifiers, we are made to be telescope magnifiers. We live in a world that has made God small, and what they need to be saved is to be, see a God who has for the longest time, although he has always been there. See, we need to make this invisible God visible in such a way that people can say this is who God is. See. Edward Hubble and James Webb, their magnifiers are great. But see, you know God's magnifier is? The Jesus Christ magnifier is the church. We are made up of hundreds Hundreds of little mirrors. that's what we are. We are all together, side by side, little mirrors that all side by side work together to show Hamilton and, and Trenton and all the surrounding areas how great and awesome God is. That's what we do as a church. and that's what we do as individuals. We want people to see him to be as big as he really is. So how do we do that, Pastor Walker? How do I do that? Paul says, let me show you three reasons. I'm I'm only going to do one, so don't worry. Verse 21. See the little word for? It's not the first time he uses it because he uses the little word for at the beginning of verse 18, 19, 21. He's trying to argue, here's why God put me in prison. You think it's a shameful thing, but God says it's been a good thing. And here's how the good things have happened. Others have become more bold. Paul has become bold, and Jesus Christ has been magnified. That's why verse 21 starts with four. It's the last reason he says that God put him in prison. Here's why. Because now people in my imprisonment, in my chains, God has used it to show people how big he really is. Strange thing about verse 21, there are no verbs in it. And if you know about making statements in the original languages, you don't do that very often. There are no verbs And so Luther and Calvin, when they read this in the original language, they translated verse 21 this way. Listen, for me, Christ is gain in life and in death. Because there's no verb. For me, Christ is gain. Now, listen, Christ was the purpose of Paul, he's saying, in both his life and his death. Whether he lived or he died, he wanted more than anything else, Jesus Christ to be magnified. And the question you have to ask is, how did he do it? Because you have to find out how you can, I can do it. And, and listen, he did it through a lot of hurt. He did it through a lot of heartache, a lot of loss. People betrayed him, made fun of him, used his imprisonment to make sure that people knew that God must be, not, must be cursing Paul. But he says, you know what my greatest purpose is? Jesus. How do you do that? Ready? He has to also be your greatest gain. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's how you do it. He can be your greatest purpose, and he, actually he never will be, unless he is more valuable to you, more worth to you, than anyone or anything, Period. It's only possible, it's only possible to be that committed to Jesus if you have a radically upside down, otherworldly value system. Picture it this way. It's like having an asset and a liabilities chart. It's like having, I call a life ledger. A life ledger where you have gains on one side and losses, assets, liabilities like this. Paul did that. And the only other place, and I'm going to show it to you and we'll be done. Chapter 3, Philippians 3, if you're right there, just turn the page over. The only other time in the entire epistle, he uses the word gain. So he gives us an explanation about what the first time he uses it is by the second time he uses it. What does he mean, dying is gain? What does he mean, Jesus is his greatest gain? He's going to tell you how it happened in his life. Chapter 3, verse 7 reads, But whatever gain I had, and verses 4 through 6 tell you what that was. He was a religious somebody. He was a Pharisee. He was strict. He kept the law. He was blameless. You couldn't look at his life and find things wrong. We would say today, he's very religious. He's a good person. He was moral. He was upright. He didn't rip people off. He didn't do any of those bad things. You would look at him and say, this guy is a great guy. And he goes through the whole list of his spiritual pedigree about how great he was religiously. And he calls it self-righteousness. That, see, and in, and in that part of his life, here's what it was. At that point, before he became a Christian, his greatest gain was his own self-righteousness and how good he lived. And his greatest loss was Jesus. And that's why he went around persecuting people and, and killing them and had Stephen murdered and all, all the things he did. You know why? Because Jesus was about as worthless to Paul as anything else. And that's his before Jesus ledger. His life ledger, this was gain, Jesus was lost. The day he got saved on the Damascus Road, it all changed. His life ledger flipped, completely reversed. And by the way, listen, if you are truly a Christian this morning, and you know Jesus Christ, your life and all that you thought was important and all that you thought was gain and what really mattered most to you in life has totally switched places, so now he says, it's not self-righteousness, but I want to be found in him, listen, not having mine own righteousness, which is the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. How do you do it? How did he come to have Jesus as his lowest value, his total liability was Jesus, and now Jesus is his total gain? I mean, it was completely opposite of one another. The key word, can I tell and read it for you? is verse 8. Let me read it for you. But whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss, watch, because of the surpassing worth of knowing him. The surpassing worth. That same word is used in chapter 2 and verse 3, and chapter 4 and verse 7. It means beyond comprehension. Jesus is so much more valuable than anyone and anything else that there is no competition. There all are no competitors. There is nothing and no one that even rivals how great he is. Now, if you're a Christian this morning and you're considering making Jesus your greatest purpose so that you can be totally committed to him, here's what it takes. Verse 7 says, Past tense verb, watch. I counted loss. See, counted, E-D, past tense. Paul writes 30 years, before, 30 years before the prison, he met Jesus on the Damascus Road and everything he thought, including his whole life of religion, his whole life, I count all of it loss. I give up all of that. I give up all of that And I only have this, Jesus, and that's enough for me. See, see, that's what I did in the past. It was a past decision. But when you're a Christian, hear me. This is why you're struggling. Verse 8 says, and I count. See it? Present tense. And I count. In other words, still to this day, 30 years later, I am still making that same decision over and over and over I counted everything, but I gave it all up for him. And now every single day, I'm still counting it. I'm still counting Jesus as my greatest asset, as my greatest gain and everything else, including not being in prison, my freedom, not having a future, my life may be over. He says, see, in my present circumstance, I'm just making that same decision. So having Jesus as your greatest purpose, really, is is an event and it is a process. It is something that you start down a road on, but something that that road continues on every single day of your life until you see Jesus in glory and you b- become like him. See he says that's what it takes. Would you walk that plank? Would you walk across that for him? Is he your greatest gain? Don't ask don't don't try to answer in your mind. Look at your life. Paul says, look at me. I'm not just spouting out words. I'm in prison. Look at me. All that I've lost and how many times I've been beaten. See, here's what Jesus says. I want to know, do you value me like that? Am I worth it to you like that? Am I your number one gain? Is that a choice? Listen, is that a choice that you just made back then so that you could not go to hell and get into heaven? Or is it a choice in the present that you're still willing to make every day? See, am I better than the guy you shouldn't be dating you shouldn't be? Am I more to you than the job you want and you're willing to compromise ethically to get it? Am I more to you than even not having cancer? Am I more to you than your kids turning right, outright, Am I more to you than having enough money for retirement? See, am I more? I want to know, God says. I want to know where I stand. Have you counted it loss for me? There are a lot of people, and perhaps some of you in this room this morning, you have not become a Christian, and you're still holding out, and you know you should because you know who Jesus is and what he's done, and you won't. You know why? Because of this very principle. Jesus said it this way, listen. Mark chapter 8, in verses 34 through 36. Jesus says, for what does it profit a man? Listen, same language as Paul uses, gain and loss. Ready? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? You see, you know what the difference between hell and heaven is? Jesus, not just Jesus, but what he is worth to you. You know what his cross demands, his death and resurrection for your sins? It demands this that you make him your greatest purpose, your greatest gain, and that you would leave everything else behind and consider it loss. Listen, your religion. But I've always been Seventh day Adventist. I have always thought that I, you know, be a good person was enough. I always thought, and see, I've, I've been this, and I've done that in my religion, and this has been my life, I know. And Jesus says, am I worth more to you than that? Because you can't, you'll never come to me because you're still trying to gain the world. You still think that your self-righteousness and your religiosity and your own goodness is gonna be enough. He you have to drop all of that. You gotta count it as loss to gain me and what I did for you when I died for you and rose again for your sins. Today, Jesus brought you here, and he wants to know, will you let go of your own self-righteousness? Will you let go of your religiosity? Will you let go of finding gain in something that you are or what you can do? Will you let it go? And instead, would you put your faith and trust in him, that he is the greatest person and therefore your greatest purpose and you want to tell him today I count it all loss. Jesus, I want to make you the greatest asset, the greatest gain, the most valuable, worthy, incalculably worthy person and thing in my life. That's what he's looking for. And because of what he did and who he is, he could never ask anything less. Many people, Jesus said, come and follow me, sell all you have, give it to the poor. Leave everything behind. Let the dead bear the dead. See, he told people ultimate choices. And he had to be their greatest purpose. The question is, is he yours? Would you walk that plank this morning? Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, Some of you right now, even as I'm speaking, you're contemplating it. You're weighing it out on the ledger, aren't you? Gains, losses, assets, liabilities. If I came to Jesus this morning and I walked down that aisle on that song, then I shook your hand, Pastor Walker, and said, I need someone to show me from the Bible how I can be saved, how Jesus, through his cross, death, and resurrection, can forgive my sins, how I can make him my greatest gain have him in my life you're already worried well what will other people think you're thinking that shame honor thing what will people think if I don't have all what happens to everything in my past is it all worthless you're thinking about the losses and as long as you think about the losses you'll never see Jesus as the gain look away from it look away from it let it him be your eager expectation let him be your hope look away from the losses and the distractions and everything everyone else would say or tell you look away from that and look to him looking unto jesus the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Would you look away from your life to his? Would you choose by his grace and by the work of his spirit to make him your greatest gain and say, God, today I want you as my Lord and Savior. I'm asking for your forgiveness and I want to live the rest of my life to magnify you. Perhaps for some here this morning, you're a Christian and you've made the I counted decision the past one years ago. But you'd say, Pastor Walker, I'll have to be honest. I'm, I have struggled making that same I count him everything. I'm not counting everything as lost as I ought to on a daily basis. He's not, he's not as big in my life as he. Need. he's not being magnified to the extent that he really is. And I'm not really sure if my friends and my family or my coworkers and my neighbors, I'm not sure when they look at me if they see him. At least not to the extent that he's as big as he really should be in my life. See this morning, maybe you need to come and we don't do it often, but you could come and bow on this steps before the altar and say God, as a Christian, I want to magnify you. I want it to be my greatest purpose. I want to totally commit to you. We haven't had that altar call in these 5 weeks, but today's the climax. Would you do that today? Maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe as we sing You need to come and say, hey, I just need to give my life to Jesus. I need to get saved. I need to have him as my greatest gain, and I need to do that today by accepting him. You come. Would you come as we sing, Father, help us? Jesus, whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we believe it or not, it doesn't change the reality that it's true. You are the greatest gain ever because you are the greatest purpose and person ever. I pray today for Christians who are struggling, for those who are holding out, Lord, who need to get saved. May they look away from the losses and look away from the distractions and look to you and your cross that they might be saved. Only you, Lord Jesus, only you, Master, can bring about that kind of change. And I pray in this moment by your spirit that you would do just that, transform lives from the inside out for eternity and may it be to bring magnification to you. For it's in Jesus' name we ask it, amen.